It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. As we come to the book of Romans, um, I feel like every week I try to give you a little bit, uh, it, this won't happen for the whole series, but I give you a little bit more information um, in relationship or remind you of things that I think are so important about the book of Romans. Um, the book of Romans, I would submit to you, uh, is, uh, now this is debatable, but in my opinion, the book of Romans is the most important book in the New Testament. Um, if I had only one book of the Bible and I was stranded on an island uh, and you said, what's the one book of the, uh, the Bible that you would take with you? If I only had one thing to take, one book, I would take the book of Romans. It doesn't diminish any of the other books. They're all amazing and awesome, the other 65. But the book of Romans basically encapsulates every single theological viewpoint in the scripture. Um, it is uh, filled with doctrine, filled with teaching. I would say this. If you learn the book of Romans, you, you will very quickly have a master's level, uh, what, what we call in the, in the church world an MDiv, a master's of divinity and ministry. You'd have that just by understanding the book of Romans. It is that powerful of a book. There are other books. Uh, some people might argue that the book of Hebrews is uh, as good and helpful, and I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't uh, disagree the importance and help of Hebrews, but I would probably think that would be in a little bit of a distant second that the book of Romans is just so powerful. Well, the book of Romans is really made up of, if you will, five divisions, uh, five divisions, not including the introduction, which is verses 1 to 17 of chapter 1. Uh, the, it starts the first division in chapter 1, verse number 18. It goes through chapter 3, verse number 20. It comprises primarily of doctrinal matters and focuses on uh, the issues of sin and judgment for the two and a half chapters. The second division is found in chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse number 21, two and a half chapters in total. And it focuses on doctrinal matters, issues of doctrine, and we'll be in there pretty soon. The third division is in chapters 6, 7, and 8, and that too deals with different doctrinal matters. And then the fourth division, 9, 10, and 11, uh, that deals with dispensational matters or issues related to time, and we'll get into the definition of dispensation and all of that, but specific things for a specific time. And it's primarily related to the nation of Israel. And then the final, the fifth division is chapter 12, verse number one through 15, verse number 13. And that division is based on practical Christianity. You say, well, uh, Pastor, what happens with chapter 15, verses 14 through the end of 16? Well, that's a conclusion. It's beautiful. I can't wait to get there. It's a beautiful conclusion. One of the best, I think, uh, in all the, anything that's ever been written. But the question has to be asked, why does Paul deal with practical Christianity at the end? And I would submit to you that the primary reason for that, as we just prepare to understand our text, is that if your doctrine is right and correct, then when you get to the practical outgrowth of your doctrine, then living in accordance with your doctrine is much easier than trying to get the practical right and then trying to adjust the doctrine to meet the practical. When we understand the theology, then it's very, it's well, not easy, but it's much easier to align ourselves with biblical theology once we know it. Can I get an amen there? So the scripture, I say that to say, Paul is not just simply about behavior, behavioral conformity or modification of behavior. He is trying to help us all to understand that there are theological implications to everything that he is referring to. Now, don't, if you're a guest, don't get distracted by words like theology and stuff like that. That means the study of God. And we just want you to understand that there's a, uh, the word of God is very much personal for you, but sometimes we might use bigger words. And if you don't know them, write them down, see me after the service. You can probably Google them and they're there, but wait till you're after, out of service uh, to do that and um, we'll help you with that. Well, Paul in writing the church at Rome is dealing with internal issues that are going on in the church that have been happening. And the church at Rome was comprised of a multicultural congregation. Um, 
multicultural is people from different cultures. Sometimes people, there's a confusion about multiculturalism. Sometimes people grow up on the same street and every house has its own culture, every family has its own culture, but we're talking about a macro level, a big level of multiculturalism. Um, that if you grow up in, with the same basic belief system, that basically you're part of the same culture. Uh, we're not talking about, and I, I mean this to be clear and, and, and non-offensive in the slightest way, we're not talking about people with different color, we're talking about people from different cultures. Sometimes we have people from Eastern Europe in our church, quite a few of them. Uh, they might be the same skin color as I am, but they grew up in a different culture. And somebody might have grown up, Hispanic folks grow up across the street from me, went to the same school, though they probably have better food than I have had growing up, without a doubt. Uh, but we're still, basically, we have the same culture. And, and Paul is talking to a group of people, I want us to be clear here, and, and I... I get out on a limb to, to help us illustrate and understand this point. Paul is talking to people who are of a different culture that are in the church. They might look like one another, and in many cases they did, but their culture was very, very distinct, very, very different. Well, who's Paul talking to? Well, if you go to chapter 1 and verse number 18 you would see rather clearly that the Apostle Paul is really talking to Gentiles, what the Bible refers to as Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jewish non people. Jews are people who are from the nation of Israel that have moved to Rome in this text, that have moved to Rome. They hold on to the, the Judeo ethic. They follow the law, the, the Mosaic law and the Torah. They go to synagogue and by the people in Rome, they're considered to be, and, and I, this is not disparaging, just a historical understanding. By the people at Rome, they're considered to be at best very, very strange people. They believed in a, what we call monotheistic God. They believed in one God for all people everywhere for all time. The Romans believed and the Gentiles, as is used for that word, the Gentiles believed in a, in a multiplicity of gods. The, the Jews believed in a certain set of practices and, and chastity and, and um, monogamy. They believed that, that marriage was one man, one woman for one lifetime, which the scripture is very clear about. We should say amen to that. Uh, that's what they believed. And that was considered very, very bizarre in the Greco-Roman world because they were very scandalous at best. They were very open in their sexuality. And the Jews were considered very strange to them. Um, the Jews would not work on Saturday and the Romans would, or the Gentiles would go to the market on Saturday. So, so their entire worlds were, were very different and they collided in the city of Rome one of the major melting pots in the world for all time. Now, when you talk about melting pots, we're talking about places in our country or in our world where people from all over the world, all over the globe, would come and live there and basically do what they could to hold on some measure of their homeland. You would think today of Los Angeles would be a melting pot, uh, majority of the melting pot of Los Angeles would be Central and South America, including Mexico in that, though there would definitely be people from all over the world there. But if you said, what's the primary melting pot of, of, of Los Angeles? That's where the average person's mind would probably think. You could think of Toronto, Canada, a major melting pot of the world. London, England, a major melting pot. People from all over the world would go there and hold on to their culture. But in my mind, the one that I'm most closely associated with is New York City. Why New York City? Well, because I've been there many times and I love New York City. And any ethnic group you want to see in the world, just go to New York City. Especially go to Queens. We went to a church in Queens and they said within a five block radius of Queens, it was something like 67 mother tongues were spoken of a five block radius of the church that I was attending. I mean, it's just by, by some sociological accounts, it is the most intense melting pot of our day. It's debatable for sure. Other people could have say other things. We wouldn't argue that. I'm just trying to illustrate what a melting pot is and how Queens is, Rome would have been that times more much more. It would have been like queens on steroids, if you will. 
I mean, Rome was a major melting pot. And so because Rome was a major melting pot, we're going to read the text, but because Rome was a major melting pot, the church, just like Canyon Ridge, we gloriously praise God for this, was comprised of people from every nation, basically, every kindred, every tribe, every tongue. Gentiles from all over the world were members of the church at Rome. They had gotten gloriously saved. They repented of their sins. They came to Christ. They were in the church at Rome. They were being discipled. They were training. They were, they were going out into a lost and dying world and preaching the gospel. I mean, these people were followers of Christ and they were from all over the known world at the time. And then you had Jews. And Paul is writing here and he's making a distinction between Gentiles in chapter one, verse number 18 through the end of the chapter of chapter one, verse 32, and Jews. And as Paul is talking to the Gentiles in chapter one, verse number 18, which would have comprised the half or more of the congregation of the church, the other group, the Jews, would have been shouting amen. They'd have been running the aisles. They'd have been waving hankies. They'd have been excited because Paul is really talking about the um, perversion if you will, not if you will, it's clear. Paul is talking about the perversion of the Gentile world and the Gentile upbringing. And and really he's talking about the Gentiles were pagans and how that they walked away from God in verse 22 of chapter one, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I mean, all of that, Paul is talking about all of that. And the Jews are sitting in haughtiness going, yes, that is not us. Those people are wicked. And then Paul, in chapter 2, turns his attention to his own judgmental people, the Jews. And he says in chapter 1, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever there are that judges. For when thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest dost the same thing. And then he begins this very long um, passage about the judgment of God on the Jewish people because they were haughty, because they were judgmental, because they were self-assured. See, their entire walk with God as Jews was based on a false sense of security. Their entire walk with God. They had a flawed metric when it came to living for Christ. They thought, I can do this and Jesus will be happy. But their this was completely flawed. Well, what were, how was it flawed? What was the problem? Well, look at verse number 17. Behold, or pay attention to what I'm saying. Behold, thou art called a Jew and restest in the law and makest thy boast of God and knowest his will and approvest the things that are more excellent being instructed out of the law and art confident that thou thyself are a guide of the blind, a light to them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and the truth in the law. Well, how are these people flawed? How is their thinking, if you you will, flawed? Well, number one, they trusted in their own goodness. They trusted in their own goodness. They, verse 17, they rested in the law. They relied on the commandments. That's what that phrase means. You're relying on the commandments. It's, it's in essence, they're saying, we keep the commandments. We are good. We are obedient to the commandment. So much so that verse number 17 says, they boasted of God or they bragged about their own obedience even to God. Even to the Lord they bragged. They they were like spiritual trash talkers. I I mean, they they would literally, the word boast, that's what it means. I don't know if these conversations were had mouth to mouth or or heart to heart, but they would go from one another, and they, at least in their heart or their mind, and they would simply think, I'm doing better than him because I'm more compliant to this law. I'm better than him because I did this or because I do that or because I do this. They're simply boasting themselves of God. It's like this, like they're saying this. In context, like I'm better than the Gentiles. I, I'm not a pervert. I'm not perverted like we talked about earlier in chapter one. I keep the law. That's what Paul is saying. 
They were haughty. They were arrogant, verse number 18. You knowest his will and you approve the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. Their boast was in knowing the will of God, verse number 18, not doing the will of God. They were, verse number 19 and 20, they were self-proclaimed experts and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babe, which has the form of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. They were experts. They were guides to the blind. If you, we have people that are blind in our world, obviously, and we've all come across them, and we've had people over the years that are in our church and still are. COVID has kept some of our older folks who cannot see from attending. But one of the things that I know is that if you're blind, you want the person helping you out to be able to see. You don't want the blind to lead the blind. If you're blind, do not tell me what exit to take. And just don't do that. I mean, you know, like, oh, I think it's the next one. How do you know? You can't see. And that's what Paul is referring to here. You are, you're, you're blind. You're, you're, you're a blind guide. You're trying to help people who are blind to see. You're, you're helping the spiritually blind to know what is right, but you yourself do not know what is right. You're a light to those. He goes on, verse number 19. You're a light to those that are in darkness. Now, the Jews were supposed to be a light to those that were in darkness. They were supposed to take the gospel as it had been revealed in the Old Testament to a lost and dying world. They were supposed to be missional. They were supposed to take the gospel everywhere. I mean, that was, that was one of the responsibilities of the nation of Israel. I mean, they were God's chosen people. Well, what were they God's chosen people? To just sit on their rear and do nothing and just tell the whole world that they were chosen? No, the reason they were chosen was to be missional and let the whole world know of the glory of God in the Old Testament and the soon coming Messiah. But they, they sat on their rear. That's what they did. They, they, they were calling was to take the light that you have been given to a lost and dying world, but they, they did nothing with it, but they did tell the lost and dying world that they knew better than them. They did tell the lost and dying world where they were wrong. They did tell the lost and dying world how silly they were, how foolish they were, how ridiculous they were, how perverted they were, how perverse they were, how messed up their families were, how destructive their marriages were. I mean, that's what these guys did, but that's all that they did. But they were supposed to be a light. Verse number 20, these self-proclaimed experts were instructors of the foolish. Foolish, I, I do not mean to be rude here, but it will sound that way, so you'll have to deal with it. Foolish means without judgment, without good judgment. It's like children. Children, the Bible says foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. Children need parents. That's why you're foolish if you let your children play video games on a computer without you sitting over their shoulder. Why? Because they don't have good judgment. That's why you young ladies, listen to me, you're foolish to marry a man that you have to raise. You don't want to raise your husband. You want to raise your children. You're without good judgment if you have to raise your, your husband. Somebody said, well, but I really love him. He's so cute. Yeah, he'll eventually stink. Give it about three minutes after marriage. You don't want to raise your husband. You don't want to have a childish husband. They are foolish. They are without good judgment. You don't want to be telling your husband all the time, no, honey, we can't buy that. No, honey, we can't do that. You don't want to be his surrogate mother. You don't want to be a nursing your own husband, if you will. That's just a marriage. I'm getting ready for a marriage retreat in February. It's coming. Verse number 20. They're instructors of the foolish. They're, they're, they're without understanding these people are, these Jews are, and, they, and they're trying to give 
judgment to people or instruction to people who have no judgment. So it's like, it's not only the blind, Paul is drawing huge attention to this. Remember, there's not an exclamation point. So he's using literary means to draw a tremendous effect or tremendous uh, attention here. And he's saying, not only are you the blind leading the blind, you're the foolish leading the foolish. You're, you're a light that shines no light. You, you're, you're without any effect in the world in which you live. Verse number 20, which has to form, that's a negative word. You have a form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. They had an intellectual understanding of the law. They understood in their head what it was supposed to be about. They could argue what the law was supposed to be about. They could talk what the law was supposed to be about. They were haughty about what they knew. But when it came down to it, it was without value. Why? Because it was all in their head. Now, they were non-missional. They didn't take the gospel and salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone has always been the message of the Bible. From the book of Genesis chapter one till the end of the Revelation chapter 22, verse 21, the Bible is all about Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, salvation was repentance and faith. Repentance meaning I've, I've sinned against God. I agree with God that I've sinned against him. And in the Old Testament, they looked forward to Christ's coming. In the New Testament, after Jesus died on the cross, salvation is looking back. In the Old Testament, the theological word is hope. They were looking in hope or expectation of Christ's coming. In the New Testament, we look back in faith to Christ who has come. And we look back in faith to Christ who has come and we believe and accept him by faith. We believe salvation is by grace alone, by the work of God alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other means of salvation and there never has been any other means of salvation. Though some people are of the opinion like, oh, in the Old Testament, they had to work their way to heaven. No, you have a gross misunderstanding of the scripture if you believe that. Salvation has always been by grace through faith in Christ alone. One looking forward to, one looking back. These Jews, as Paul, as we work our way through this, this wonderfully impactful and in some ways challenging text, Paul is saying you have an intellectual understanding of the law, but you've done nothing with it. But every once in a while, they would do something with it and they would make a proselyte. They would take a, a proselyte as a Gentile in this text, a Gentile who becomes a Jew, because you say, well, a Jew, they're not born a Hebrew, right? Hebrews are the nationality. Jew is the religion. So you can be a Hebrew and not be a Jew. When you go to Israel with us in a couple of years, when it opens back up, do not confuse the two. There's a whole lot of Hebrews who are not Jews. Whole lot. Well, Paul is saying you, some of you, and Jesus says this, some of you have even taken the Bible or, or taken the, the truth and you've gone all over the world and you've made a proselyte. Matthew 23, 15 says, woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourself. In other words, number one, leave that up there for a second. You're a child of hell. You can read that at the end, more, twofold more a child of hell than yourselves. And, and you've made him twofold more. Why? Well, there was a time when he was without Christ, without hope, and he knew he was without hope. But now you have made this guy twofold more. In other words, he, he knew he was without hope, but now he thinks he has hope because he's doing what you've told him to do, but doing it your way will never bring salvation because you're a Pharisee, you're a hypocrite, and, and, and what you say is grossly inaccurate, and you've abused this text. And so even when you do take what you think to be the truth to a lost and dying world, you're doing it in such a way that actually is, is counterproductive or destructive as opposed to helpful. And why is that? 
Why are they doing this? I mean, if you thought chapter one, Paul's attacking the Gentiles and, and, and the, the polytheistic perverted nature of the, of the Greco-Roman world at the time, and Paul is blasting now the Jews. And why is he blasting the Jews? Well, because they're haughty, but verse 21 to 25, they couldn't meet their own standard. They could not meet their own standard. Verse 21, thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou which preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. As is written, for circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. They were preaching a message, verse 21 and 22, that they just failed to keep. They didn't keep their, their own counsel. You, you teach others, you don't teach yourself. You preach, a man should not steal, do you steal? I mean, literally, they were like financial planners who constantly declare bankruptcy. They didn't live by God's standards. Verse 21, they were thieves. You, you say you shouldn't steal, but you steal. The Bible is very clear about this. Isaiah chapter 56, verse number 11, God talking, Isaiah talking to the nation of Israel. Yea, they are talking about these people to whom Paul is speaking, the exact same people. Yea, they are greedy dogs, which can never have enough. They are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain from his quarter. They'll do whatever they need to do to make a gain, to make a profit. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse number 12. In thee have they taken gifts to shed blood. They're mercenaries. Thou hast taken usury and increased. Thou hast greedily gained of thy neighbor by extortion and forgotten me, saith the Lord. You've taken money to shed blood? You're paid to, to abuse your neighbor? You, you've taken usury or charged interest, which was a violation of the law? You've charged interest just so that you could make more money? Which was a violation of what God said for the Jew not to, or the Hebrew not to charge his brother interest, but to, if the loan is worthy, to give him a loan and he'll repay it? You've gained off your neighbor by extorting them? Oh, let me tell you, if you don't give me some money, if you don't give me some land, if you don't give me your, you know, your goat, then I'm going to turn you into the authorities because I saw the other night what happened. They're blackmailing, the word extortion, blackmail. They're blackmailing them. I mean, you're, you're, you're gaining off them? Book of Amos chapter eight, verse number five says, making the ephah small and the shekel great and falsifying the balances by deceit. An ephah was kind of a measurement for, for uh, a particular, for grain. Like you could have a ephah of, of wheat or barley or corn for that matter. And, and Amos says, you, you, you have a scale and it's supposed to measure out an ephah and come into balance, but you've made the scale such that instead of, of one, the ephah being a, uh, just for our vernacular or, or our understanding, the ephah being two pounds, you've made it 1.75 pounds. So you've, you've made the ephah smaller than it's supposed to be and the change that you would give, somebody would pay and they would say for two pounds of, of flour, I'll give you five bucks and, uh, or it cost uh, five bucks and all they had was a 10 and you're giving back shekels and rather than the shekels being the proper weight, you've added filler metal and the shekel is now of less value. It'd be like saying you, you, you gave me back a dollar but the dollar was only worth 90 cents. You just steal with intent and you make false balances, which the Bible says an unjust weight and an unjust balance is an abomination to the Lord. You're stealing from your neighbor. You're stealing from one another. You're stealing from God. Malachi accused his fellow Jews. Malachi is the last prophet that you would read in the Bible, not the last book written in the, in the Old Testament, but chrono, it's just laid there, but chronologically it's earlier than others. But Malachi accused his fellow Jews of robbing God by withholding tithes and offerings that were owed to God. 
Malachi chapter 3, verse number 9, will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me, but you say, wherein did we rob thee? And he says, in tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you've robbed me. Even this whole nation, you have stolen that which is God's. Well, I don't think you have to tithe, pastor. I mean, come on. Well, here's the reality, then you're stealing from God. I don't mean any disrespect by that. I just mean you're stealing from God. Paul will go on, or, or yeah, Paul will go on, and, and Jesus is clear about people stealing in the temple and, and, and taking from God. And if we were to read Josephus, we would read about people that were literally uh, stealing from the collection plate in the temple. They were stealing, like, like, like people would come in and give an offering to the Lord, and under cover of darkness, they would come in and they would steal that, those monies that were to be used for, for the Lord and for his work. And you say, I can't believe that anybody would steal from the church. Well, let, let me be honest with you. If you're taking the tithe and offering, you're doing the same thing. It's the Lord's tithe. That's why the Bible calls it that. Well, I saw somebody online. Okay, that's your first problem. You've now become an internet theologian. You say, well, they said there's no tithing in the New Testament. Well, to be very candid with you, they're completely wrong and grossly ignorant. Tithing was ordered in the Old Testament, and we see the example of Abraham in the book of Genesis giving Melchizedek a tithe of all. Before there was ever the law, there was tithing. And then Moses commanded tithing, and then Malachi condemned people for not tithing. Jesus commended people for tithing, your tithing, and Paul organized tithing. And it's antithetical to think that God would give his own son, and we would sit back and go, no, God doesn't want anything of mine. God wants me to use it all for myself. Come on, man. Really? Are you that spiritually inept? Some of you right now, I see you looking at me. I'm good with that. I've been preaching this for 30 years. I'm not stopping now. Some of you are robbing from God and you think you're going to get ahead by robbing from God. You'll never get ahead robbing from the Lord. We had just bought in this building 10 years ago. And uh, 12 years ago, I guess now, working on 12 years. And uh, I mean, we, before we remodeled it and everything, 100 people voted. Well, we really went 100 people voted. About 30 people voted that year. We were running about 100 people to enter into $3 million of debt, which, I mean, back then that was a mountain of money. You say, how do you feel about it now? Like it's a smaller mountain of money, but still a, mount, a lot of money. And, and um, would a special speaker come and, and he came and we gave him a love offering. And I remember there's about 60 of us that were at that meeting at the time. And we gave him right at $1,000 that we had raised. And he called me later. He said, uh, hey, I forgot to give you my flight. Because when you have somebody in, you always pay for their, their travel arrangements. It's the right thing to do. And so he said, I forgot to give you my flight. He goes, did, did you need the receipt? And he thought we had just paid for it out of the $1,000. And I said, oh, oh, yeah, I'm super sorry. I said, send me that information and we'll send you a check for it. He goes, oh no, Chris, you, you already gave me the money. I just didn't know if you needed the receipt. I said, well, we didn't give you the money. We just gave you a love offering. He's an older pastor that's now retired. He wasn't then, but he is now. And he said, he got his pastor a voice. He said, no, Chris, that's as deep as I can go. No, Chris, um, if you're ever going to get out of debt, you can't be given big love offerings like this. You've got to be a little bit, he was being kind when he said it. These weren't his exact words, but this was the thought. You've got to be a little bit more stingy than you're being. To which I said, are you talking to my mother-in-law? I mean, what's the deal? And I said, I called him by name. I said, Pastor, if I could be honest with you, I just believe the Bible where it says, given it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom. We're just gonna give our way out of debt. You can't keep your way out of debt, but you can give your way out of debt. And in God's economy, giving is the way to, to see great things happen. And you say, well, what if God doesn't give back even when I give? Well, it's still his to do what he wants to with. Regardless of the return. 
Some people, I know some of y'all in here right now. I knew we shouldn't have come to church today. I knew it. He's going to talk about money. He's going to talk about it. I told you, sweetheart, we should have stayed home. We shouldn't have come. I mean, this is our hard-earned money. No, no, the tithe is the Lord's. And for you to not do so, and I'm only on this. I didn't do this at the grade 30 service, but I didn't feel resistance. I feel some resistance here. The tithe is the Lord's not yours, and you're stealing from God. You say, well, I'm not coming back to this church if you think that. Well, then you'll have to find somewhere else to go because I'm going to preach the truth. I committed a long time ago that I'm going to preach the truth, and that is the truth of God's word. And it's amazing to me that people will get online and say, God doesn't expect you to tithe, but please support our ministry. That's hypocritical on every level, and you're fraudulent if you actually believe them. You say, well, you said if I tithe, I'll get rich tomorrow. No, probably if you tithe, you'll be 10% less rich tomorrow. I don't know when God's going to repay it. I can tell you for Debbie and I, we've been married this December 27 years. There's no, we've never missed a tithe check. We've never missed a week of giving to missions. We've never missed a special offering. And you say, well, you guys are wealthy now. No, we still buy our clothes on sale. And you say, how do you feel about it? The better the sale, the better I feel. Matter of fact, if it's a good sale, I'll call people up. Like, bro, there's a sale. One of our new staff members saw a good sale the other day. He didn't call anybody up. He had to do office burpees. Why? Because dude let the team down. We like stuff on sale. Tithing. They were thieves. You say, you say I'm stealing from God? I am. I am, based on the authority of God's word. You are stealing from God. And you got to get that right. This isn't a message about tithing. It's just a message about these people who are saying that, oh, oh, thou should not steal. But you're stealing. You're a hypocrite. Not only that, continue looking. Verse number uh, 19. Um, uh, I'm sorry, verse number 22. Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? You're saying you shouldn't commit adultery. Good, but do you commit adultery? It's rhetorical, so he's saying you say you shouldn't commit adultery, but you're committing adultery. So he's not really asking the question. He's, it's just a literary form of, of affirming what he already knows to be true. You are committing adultery. See, as with stealing, the clear implication is that that's what they're doing. Well, how are they committing adultery? Well, they knew that God's law was against adultery um, and Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 32, when he talked to the Pharisees that, that whosoever puts his way of his wife, except for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. And so they understood what the, what the law commanded. So what these guys came up with, I jumped ahead too far in that verse, but what these guys came up with, the, the Jews came up with was, well, rather than commit adultery, we'll just come up for a thousand reasons why we can divorce our wives and they did they had a ton of reasons why they could divorce their wife uh that uh she had spoken back to his mother well that was immediate cause for divorce she had she had i was thinking of some of the the silly ones earlier today she had hammered something in the wall and damaged the wall justifiable cause for divorce in their economy she had burnt the food justifiable cause for divorce in their economy i mean let me tell you if you weren't a good cooking carpenter you could get divorced like that in that world if you didn't satisfy your husband with every weird wish that he ever wanted you could be divorced and divorce was easy for a man. It was illegal for a woman. But for the men in that culture, they could divorce just at the drop of a hat. I mean, in, honestly, it was like vending machine divorce. You just walk up, you tell people that we're divorced. She's on her own. You're going your own way. And now you can go truly have sex with whoever you want now. But it's not adultery because now we're divorced. And Paul is, Paul is castigating them. You're saying you shouldn't commit adultery? You're telling the Gentiles they shouldn't commit adultery, but you're committing adultery, and they're going, no, 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 Paul, we divorce before, before anything happens, and we get remarried, so, so we're fine. Yeah, but you've been divorced and remarried nine times. 
Well, why can a person get divorced? Well, we read it earlier. One is for fornication. They have sex outside. That, that the guilty party has sex outside of marriage. And I know some of you have been divorced. Me, no, no harm here. This is just what Jesus says that the guilty party who commits adultery in the marriage can never be remarried. The innocent party can. And then there's another reason for divorce, 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 15. If the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not into bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. In other words, if somebody abandons you, well, then, yeah, there's divorce and and you're free to remarry. Paul is saying, you teach all these laws. Verse number 22, you say, Man shouldn't steal. Do you steal? You say you shouldn't commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, but do you? Com- but you commit sacrilege. The word abhorrest means to stink. Israel in their past had fallen into adultery, but in the, the past several hundred years, by the time we read this text, that or, or idolatry, idolatry was, was was gone from the nation of Israel as a general rule. But it didn't mean they didn't worship things. They would commit sacrilege. They, they would, they really, and the, the great thing that they worshipped was money. They wanted more money and they wanted more stuff. They wanted more money and they wanted more stuff. They would steal from the temple. Uh, Josephus, who was the Jewish historian of the day, said that often these folks would, um, these thieves would convince Gentiles to give money for a blessing, but they, <laughs> they lied to them and then they would take those monies and use them for themselves. They would commit sacrilege. It's a form of idolatry. Loving money is the form of idolatry. That's why you don't tithe, because you love money. That's why don't, you don't give to missions because you love money. Well, it's mine because you love money. That's why you're stingy because you love money. The Bible says the liberal soul shall be made fat. The word liberal means generous. They're always giving, giving, giving. That liberal soul shall be made fat. But the person who is constantly stingy and, and unwilling to give, that person's going to be... very alone in their life. Verse 23 to 24, their lack of honesty and humility dishonored God. Thou makest thy boast of the law through breaking of the law. Thou dishonorest the law. Uh, Let me read that correctly. Uh, Verse 23, thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law dishonorest thou God. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. Verse 23, you dishonor God. Where dishonor means to bring shame on. You bring shame on God. You literally are bringing shame against God. You're treating God without respect. You're treating God when you lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery. You're bringing shame and you're treating God without, without respect. The arrogant, haughty, self-righteous heart here is especially troubling because these folks claim to know the word of God. That's why the scripture says the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Blasphemed. They, they spoke impiously the, the the gentiles spoke impiously they they made fun of god because of the actions of the jews it's like the dude you work next to in the cubicle or on the ship or in the office that goes i thought you were supposed to be a christian <laughs> or, or you say well they've never said that to me well what do they say when you're not there Oh, I thought she was supposed to be a Christian. Do you see how she's talking about that guy that's not her husband? Do you, do, do you hear what you're saying about money? Do you, do you see how selfish that person is? I mean, is that what Christianity is all about? We're going to study tonight in the book of Genesis chapter 20. I really pray that you're here. We're going to study tonight about the perils of inconsistency. How that, and I did not plan for these to match up so well. But one of the perils of inconsistency is that it's a it's a reproach to God as the lost world looks at your inconsistency. 
So here are these Jews that see you as a professed believer getting lit up on Friday night going, yeah, let's party. But when you walk away, they're mocking God. They're hearing you tell the dirty jokes. They're watching you drink the beer. They're watching you lust after porn. They're watching you as the girl walks by that hasn't had children and you're following her rear as she walks down the hallway. And they're going, and that's a Christian? That's what Paul's saying right here. They're watching your crappy attitude at work. If you're wondering what I just said, let me clear that up. I don't want to be offensive. They're watching your crappy attitude at work. They're watching your laziness. I mean, I mean that, I'm just trying to help you to understand how to apply the text to your own life. They're watching you talk back to the boss. They're watching you gamble on games. You say, well, they don't know the difference. Why does it matter? Oh, see, that's where you forgot. The law of God is already written on their hearts. They don't have to come to church to know what's right and wrong. Ask a lost person how a Christian is supposed to act. They are theologians at the highest level when it's about somebody else. You say, well, I've never had anybody say anything. Move to a different state. Like, move to New York or come be my friend. Because some of us will just be clear when you don't want us to be clear. And that's what Paul is saying. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through or because of you. Their hypocrisy led the lost world to blaspheme God. Oh, there's another application. There's a spirit in some people that get a little bit of Bible knowledge about them. And I love that. We, we try to do that through Faith Bible Institute, through discipleship, expositional preaching, one-on-one conversations. But sometimes people get a little bit of Bible knowledge about themselves and they become what I, and this is not an unkind statement, hopefully, but they become church experts. And they want to tell everybody how church is supposed to be. They want to tell the pastor how to preach. They want to tell the youth pastor how to have activities. They want to tell the music guy how to do music. And maybe they know something or maybe they don't. But they become the self-proclaimed experts in every single area of the church. And they will walk up and they'll tell people this. And they'll tell people that. And they'll tell people this. And and boy, if you don't do it, they try to make a fuss. And they know how best to do everything. And you say, do we have any in our church? I don't know if we have any right now. But if I find out about it, we're going to have a little conversation or maybe a big conversation for that matter because we've had some in the past and to be honest with you, they're horrible people to be around and they hurt the cause of Christ on every level. I had a family in our church years ago, saw them a couple years ago in the state of Colorado and man alive, when they were here, they were the most graceless, offensive people I'd ever met in my life. They would invite you over to their house for a meal and it wasn't long before they were pushing all of their philosophy on you, all of their thoughts. They could have whatever opinion they wanted. We try not to control people's opinion by any means, but they were the type that if you did not do, they're just exactly what Paul is referring to here. If you did not do what they wanted you to do, man, they would pressure you. Uh, they, would, they would almost attack you. They would, they would say things like, we're just so disappointed in you. And, and, and I mean, they were just very, very harsh folks. And we've had several over the years. They come from different churches and they know best how to do everything at Canyon Ridge. They don't have any pastoral authority. They're not leadership uh, material at all. They're not, they don't serve as a trustee or a leader or community Bible study leader. They don't disciple anyone, or maybe they even do that. But I mean, they're, they just come in and they want to tell everybody how to do everything. And they look down their nose at you if you don't do what they want to do. And the problem is, is you give it enough time and they can't keep Keep their own requirements. This family was in our church years ago. I 
had a conversation with the guy a couple years ago. And he's like, I just don't believe any of that anymore. And so now you can't even look at his kid's social media page because of the near perversion of those things. Well, what are they doing? They're making a standard that not even they can keep. And that's what Paul is saying to the Jews. And it's intensely applicable to us. Why? Because sometimes in conservative churches, and as we follow the word of God and we see what the word of God says, if we're not careful, we begin to demand things of us that God has not demanded, demand things of others that God has not demanded. Oh, he might have spoken to us for about 16 years. I didn't have a single lady's number in my phone other than my wife. Now I have a couple, staff members, wives, and stuff like that. You say, why not? Just kind of a protection. I just kind of felt like you say, well, I think you're weird. That's fine. My mom has a fan club. It's on Facebook. Chris is weird. You can join. You can share testimonies. I wouldn't deny any of that. But I just kind of felt in my mind that I probably wouldn't commit adultery with a woman that I never called. I figured like that's probably step one. So I'm like, I'll just get rid of that step. I'm not saying anybody else had to. And I've said that for years. I'm not saying anybody else has to. Bernie, he just finds women walking down the street and he'll get their numbers. They slap him all the time. He's got every number in the, I mean, dude is a, is a, his phone is, that's why he has a thick phone. I have to pay extra. The church has to pay extra for his phone just because he needs extra memory for all the phone numbers. Every once in a while, I'm like, hey, Bernie, uh, Margaret Thatcher, I know she's dead, but do you have her number? Oh, yeah, Pastor, here it is, 000. Dude has everybody's phone number in it. I haven't tried to put that requirement on him, but I felt like it was a requirement for me. And you say, well, why would you do it? Not everybody else, because God spoke to me about it. We'll learn about that in Romans chapter 14. There are some things that God can require of you that he doesn't necessarily have to require of everybody else. But the Jews were making these requirements of everybody that they themselves could not even keep. I've got to hurry. Every week I say that. You would think I would prepare. Verse 26, well, why is all of this so difficult? Well, see, their confidence um, was deafening in light of the fact they were so confident that they were Jews and they knew the law and they had all of this information and their, their confidence, like, we are right. We are better than them. It's like, it's like a high school prep rally with these guys. And sometimes that's what it is with us. But what was the problem? The problem is in verse 26 through the end of the chapter their heritage was of no eternal benefit. Now, I want to be careful here and say that there was a blessing to being a Jew. It was the blessing, well, you could look down in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Again, he's using Jew and circumcision as synonyms, what, basic synonyms. What benefit is there? What profit is there? What's the blessing? What's the advantage? He says, much eat every way chiefly, or here's the big thing, because that unto the Jew or the circumcision, both the same group of people, the Jewish people, were committed the oracles of God or they heard the word of God first. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 12, verse number 48, for unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. Of whom men have committed much, of him will they ask more. Here's the idea. Let me just make the application to help us understand the concept of what Paul is saying about the heritage. You're not blessed because you were born a Jew. You're blessed because you heard the word of God. It's like me. I said last week, I was born into a family where I heard the Bible, the gospel in the womb. I grew up listening to the Bible and listening to sermons and listening to people and hearing the Bible read and went to Christian school and had parents that loved Jesus. And I've known the Bible my whole life. I mean, that's what I know. There is is a higher responsibility in my life than there is somebody who's never heard the gospel before. Higher responsibility. 
There's more required of you, some of you teenagers that have grown up in church than there is some kid in the barrio who's never heard that Jesus loves him. Or some kid on Kelly Street who, who just immigrated here from Mexico and nobody's ever shared the gospel with him. There's a higher responsibility on us. Now, all men must accept Christ by grace through faith in Christ alone, but there is a higher responsibility on those of you that grew up hearing the gospel being in church. And there's a high responsibility placed on you because you have access to the Bible. I, I, I literally have more Bible information on my phone. I'm not talking about the internet, just on my phone with the two apps that I have than the great preachers, than Charles Spurgeon or Jonathan Edwards had in their entire life. I have more Bible information available than both of those men do, did, rather, they're dead, than both of those men did combined. Way more. You say, well, you ought to preach better. I get it. I agree. You say, I bet they didn't preach as long. No, they did. That's where I got my preaching from. Verse number 28. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit. And here's the key word, and not in the letter or not in the letter of the law. I'm almost done, but stick with me here. Here is a very important point for our church to understand, for you to understand. Being a Jew and... And, and the idea of the word Jew here that Paul is referring to, again, with these folks, is, is an honored position, a blessed position, if you will, a place of privilege, if you will. I'm not trying to abuse the word. I'm just trying to help us in our nomenclature to understand that this is a, this is a treasured position. So he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter of the law. Not in the letter. Well, what's the letter of the law? This person is a legalist, what we call a legalist. A legalist is someone who finds a verse or a command to justify an action or a behavior that they were comfortable with. And they look down on everyone else who fails to meet their criteria. They, they, they find this verse or command. Now, we're not, we're not saying that they're being obedient to the Scripture. They're literally finding a verse or command that fits, listen to what I'm saying, what they already want to do. Now, the modern cultural idea of this is that legalists are always people who are more conservative. And though you can find some conservative legalist if you've been in church very long, I would submit to you that there are far more, maybe as many or far more people who are not conservative at all who are legalist. Because a legalist is someone who finds their behavior justifiable based on a phrase or a verse in spite of, and he's contrasting the word spirit here in verse number 29, in spite of the spirit of the law, which looks at the intent of the law, and the person who follows the spirit will follow said intent, whether they like it or not, they're going to obey the word. Why? Because it's the spirit of the law. But the legalist says, no, they say two things, one of two things. No, this is exactly what this passage says. So that's what I get to do. I remember a couple of years ago talking to a man who had been a pastor and he heard I was writing a book on alcohol and he was not happy, which I could not figure out why it was any of his business. He didn't have to write it. He didn't have to read it. I don't care. It didn't matter to me. Um, we sell the books at cost, so it's not like I'm getting 99 cents from the publisher for everyone that sold. So what do I care what he wanted to do? But he began to be verbally combative and so we had a conversation and 
And I began to bring up biblical facts. And I said, like, there's 78 verses of the Bible that talk about this all in the negative. There's one verse that kind of talks about using alcohol as a medicinal thing. But there's 78 verses that talk about the negative. I hate alcohol. I hate what it does. I hate how it destroys families. I hate how it destroys marriages. I hate how it leads to kids being abused. I hate the fact that kids starve to death. I hate the fact that I grew up. I'm the first non-alcoholic in many generations on my dad's side of the family. I hate what it did to my dad. I hate the sexual abuse abuse that happens when people get drunk. I mean, I just hate everything about alcohol. Hate it. Despise it. He said, he said, well, yeah, everything you said is right, but there's one verse in Deuteronomy that talks about it. And so I'm going to hang my hat on that one verse in Deuteronomy that I think is mentioning it, mentioning it positively. I said, hey, you could do that. Totally fine. I don't have a single problem in the world with you doing that. But understand this. You are a legalist. You have found what you think to be a legal loophole so that you can do what you want to do. That's what a legalist is. Or... A legalist is someone who says, don't show me the spirit of the law or the principles of scripture. Show me the letter. So one of the, the anthem of the legalist is show me the chapter and verse, not the spirit of the text. And Paul is saying to the Jews here, the blessed one, the Jew, is one inwardly who is circumcised in the heart and the spirit, not in the letter. They're not looking for the praise of men, but they're looking for the praise of God. And so it's imperative that you and I understand what God is looking for. Here's the big idea of, of this passage from verse 17 through 29. God is looking at the heart. The heart that obeys him. The heart that just says, this is what he wants, that's what I'll do. Not this is what he commands, that's what I'll do, but this is what he wants. And in truth, we're going to be judged, here's what the text helps us understand, we're going to be judged on our heart. For God looks on the heart. The legalist looks at the letter. But God looks at the heart. Romans chapter 10, verse number 9 says, If that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness. What is the heart? The innermost being of man. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's why you don't ever have to look at porn to be addicted to porn because you can do it all in your mind. I mean, that's what, I mean just, just help us understand. You don't, you, don't have to be a, you don't have to go to a bank and rob a bank in order to be a thief. You can just keep that which is the Lord's. We could go on. And so the point that Paul is trying to draw our focus to is... God looks at your heart. God wants your heart, a heart that desires to obey him, a heart that desires to please him, a heart that desires to conform to him, a heart that says, man, if that's what the Lord wants, that's what I'm going to do. That's the heart that God is looking for, not the heart that says this. You better prove that to me. That, that's, a, that's a crummy heart. Not the heart that says, I'm doing my duty. I come to church, pastor. We're good. Well, but God wants your heart when you're at church. Some of y'all come to church like you go on a date with your mom. Like you don't want anybody to really know that you're here. And when you meet people, you're like, oh, that's my mom. My sister and I used to go out when I was a little kid. Now, now that we're older, it's okay. But as a nine-year-old, I was really concerned about meeting those teenage girls. And she would take me driving somewhere. If you don't know, my sister works in our children's ministry, runs it. And she's way older than me. I don't know, what is she, 15, 20 years older than me or something? Or, or eight, but whatever. She'd be 17, and we'd go to the grocery store. And I could really, I loved embarrassing my sister. It's really one of the fun things I do in life still. 
And uh, we'd go places, and, and I would tell people, this really started happening in major around 12 when, when she was about 20. And I would go, oh, and my sister's never been tall. I'm waiting for some of you to get that. Like, she's shorts. And I was taller as a kid, and I, I would, I'd be at the store, and I'd see a cute girl, and, and they would just flock to talking to me. Or they would run the other way, and I'd catch them in a corner. And... Uh, and I would just simply say, oh, that's my sister. Oh, that's a, what, 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 I, I wasn't embarrassed by my sister by any means, but at 12 years old, I just wanted to know any potential women I might marry at 12 that I was available. That's kind of how some of y'all come to church. It's like, oh, God, oh, God. God wants your heart. That's what he wants. Some of you aren't saved. And you say, well, I got to do all these things. No, you got to give him your heart repentance and faith in Christ. That's what he wants. He wants your heart. He wants you to submit to him. That's what he wants. Believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages anytime at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. We look forward to seeing you.